sometimes parents are not connected emotionally to their kids, to their kids' experiences, like daily experiences, you know? And if you don't feel connected or seen and you don't feel like you can say anything to your parent about an experience you're having, no matter who did it or what you did or whose fault something was, you're not going to tell, right? You're going to figure it out on your own. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. Today, we have Monica Barunda, a child abuse expert, licensed therapist, professor of child abuse, trauma, law and ethics at Cal State LA, and especially important for our conversation today, she is a veteran forensic interviewer. We will get into what a forensic interviewer does, but in short, forensic interviewers are trained to interview children and adults with disabilities who are suspected to have been abused in a way that is trauma-informed, developmentally and culturally appropriate, child-centered, non-leading, and legally defensible. Monica has over 17 years' experience and has conducted over 1,600 forensic interviews, and she shares the stories she cannot forget and the important lessons she has learned that will help you listeners better protect kids. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Today, we have the pleasure of having Monica Barunda in our little podcast studio. So, full disclosure... Monica is a very good friend of mine. We often swear a lot and giggle a lot. We're going to try hard to keep this professional, but I just had to give you that caveat, okay? So Monica, we are so happy to have you on with us today. You are a licensed marriage and family therapist in LA. You are a professor at Cal State LA, and you teach marriage and family therapy. You teach trauma. You teach child abuse. And then Also, how we know each other is through forensic interviewing. And that's actually what I wanted you to focus on today. Monica, before I ask you to tell us your story, I've noticed that most people don't know what a forensic interviewer is. I have to explain it when they ask me what I do. And I think the reason is that, you know, thanks to CSI and things like that, people think, oh, forensic interview is like a forensic science or forensic scientist, right? Or they think of forensic files. But actually, I learned this in graduate school in forensic psychology, that the definition for forensic means legal. And so forensic science is when the science interacts with the legal system. And so a forensic interviewer is someone who interviews in a way that is needed for the legal system or for court. But I think you can actually explain it much better. So tell me, what is a forensic interviewer and where does a forensic interviewer do their work? Okay, so a forensic interviewer does their work ideally at a children's advocacy center, commonly referred to as a CAC. And that is where you have different partners come in to observe the forensic interview. You can have law enforcement, child protective services, prosecution, medical, and all the other partners that may be involved in the investigation and healing of a child. So a forensic interview is done in a way that is age 
and developmentally appropriate, trauma-informed, non-leading, and all of that should make it legally defensible. Okay. How does a forensic interview even get scheduled? How does it come to you? Sure. So usually we get referrals from one of the MDT partners. Typically they come from Child Protection Services, law enforcement, so maybe a detective, or prosecution. And so they would call the CAC or the Children's Advocacy Center and ask to schedule a forensic interview. And so that's how the appointment is made. Okay. For our listeners, MDT, if it wasn't clear, stands for multidisciplinary team. And it consists of this investigative team who is investigating this possible child abuse case. Yes. And what kind of child abuse cases do forensic interviewers interview kids about? So usually, or most most of the cases that we see are sexual abuse. Some of them are severe physical abuse. We can also interview a child if they have been witnesses to major crimes like homicides and things like that. And I also wanted to say earlier that we can also interview adults with developmental delays who need a more sensitive, trauma-informed type of interview. Got it. So one of these partners calls in and says, hey, we have a possible child abuse situation here. We need a forensic interview. So then what happens? So then it's scheduled, and then somebody will make sure that all the partners are informed, and ideally they all show up. So at the forensic interview, you would have the detective, the prosecutor, the social worker, and the forensic interviewer. You can also have an advocate, which is ideal, in order to inform the parents of the different resources that are available for the children and things like that. A child forensic interview is also recorded, audio and video recorded, and provided to um, the detective and the prosecutor so that they can use it in their case. And while the interview is happening, the team is watching from either a two-way mirror or a streaming video, and then you would pause the interview at some point, go back in to talk with them to see what else is needed for the investigation or to get a more complete and accurate picture of what happened. Is that right? Yes. We usually start meeting with the team first, a pre-interview meeting, and we gather information about allegations or maybe who the child disclosed to. Maybe it was a teacher, let's say. And so then we meet, we discuss, people share information. You'd be surprised to learn how many times one of the partners has information that the other partner doesn't have. And it it's important for everyone to be informed so that they know what they're dealing with, all the dynamics, all the family stuff. So that collaboration is key. Yeah. How many have you done in your 17-year career as a forensic interviewer? At this point, I think I'm probably around up to about 1,600. Wow. 1,600 interviews of kids. And out of those, I'm sure that some stay with you. Can you tell us one that comes to mind? Sure. Okay, so there was a 16-year-old girl who came in, and she was sweet and soft-spoken, intelligent, very verbal, the type of kid that you like right away, engaging, connected. Mm -hmm. And she ended up disclosing that when she was little, before she started kinder, even her mom had died. And so at that point, she was placed with her biological father, who lived with his parents, During the interview, and it was hard for her to get through it, but during the interview, she disclosed that her grandfather had started molesting her when she was very young, 
And it had progressed to the point where he was raping her and doing all the other things that you can think of people doing to someone sexually. And then at one point he died, the grandfather. And at that point, for some reason, her biological dad started doing the same thing. And what I remember was her saying that she somehow knew that the grandmother knew. She would say things like, why is the door closed? Why are you always in there? Why don't you come outside? And so she felt like the grandmother knew and didn't really have the courage to open the door to see what was happening. And she was probably right, right? I think she was right, yes. And I'll tell you what happened at the end of the interview, but during the interview, there comes a part where we want to know who they've told, right? Who was the first person they told and how did this come about? I'm sorry to stop you right here, but I think it's important to say Sometimes people will say to both of us, gosh, how can you do this? How can you listen to kids tell you these horrible things that have happened to them? And I feel like I quickly learned that, well, actually, these are the good and hopeful cases because they actually told someone and then ended up here and are getting interviewed in order to have this investigated. And then it starts their road to healing. Because the truth is the vast majority of these kids don't tell. The average age of disclosure is 52. So the ones that we see, right, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, thank goodness you're here. Thank goodness we found out what is happening to you. And we are neutral. We're trying to go in there and find out if something happened and then what it was, if it did. So what she ended up sharing with me was that she told someone at school, I think it was a teacher, and Nothing really happened. That wasn't reported, and that was that. And then she, at one point, told it was either a priest or a pastor, so someone from her church, who tried to tell her to focus on forgiveness, and that was the way that he dealt with it. And then at one point, she said she actually walked into the police department and spoke to the person at the front desk, And they said to her, get out of here, kid, go back home. Didn't take the report seriously. I think she told someone else, because I remember thinking she told four professionals who should have reported, who should have taken it seriously and helped her. And it wasn't until she told her friend, who then told her own mom, that the mom reported it. And that's how it came out. So this is a kid who was disclosing, who was telling different people, different adults, And I just remember being really upset that neither of them, including a police officer and someone from the church and someone from her school, had done anything about it. They all failed her. All of them. Yep. And she bucked the trend and actually told and tried to have something happen and nothing happened until, thankfully, her friend's mom. Her friend's mom did something and she was the one who pushed it through. Wow. Yeah. So there was a child losing her mom before she starts kinder really, really young. It's a huge loss. She goes over to live with her dad. Her grandfather starts to molest her. And then when he dies, the dad starts to molest her. The grandmother, she thinks, knows. And she tries to tell and nobody's doing anything about it. And at the end of the interview, she knew that she would be placed in foster care because they wouldn't be able to let her go back home because grandmother was not protective, right? And so what she worried about that night as she knew she was going to be taken to foster care and was not going to be allowed to go home with her grandmother, who was in the waiting room 
she was supposed to be singing the national anthem at her high school homecoming game that night at the football game. She was worried that she wouldn't be able to do that. And so, you know, for all those reasons, that case stuck with me. And I remember her face. I remember, you know, the high school because I know where it is. And I don't know if she did sing or not. I don't know what happened to her. One of the takeaways for me is how much a child is still a child. And whether it's dissociating or surviving or just trying to move forward, she's still thinking, am I going to be able to do this thing? And it also, you know, we know that singing makes you feel good. It makes your body feel good. You're, you have some yeah. joy that you're getting from it. And why wouldn't you want to go? Right. Yeah. And clearly the rest of her life did not have a lot of joy. So this was the one thing. So cases like that that are yeah. like more extreme. And she tried to tell so many people who did nothing. That definitely stuck. I remember you telling me about a kid who you interviewed who tried to tell as well. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. I've had a lot of kids say, I tried to tell. I tried to tell my mom. And then I'll say, you know, tell me about that, right? I want to know what that means, what it looked like. And they... For some reason, they couldn't get it out. They couldn't get out the words, right? They're like, I, I couldn't get it out. It was stuck right here in my throat, and I couldn't get it out. But there was this one little boy who was being molested by his mother's brother who had moved into their home recently, and so he started touching him. And this little boy had decided to tell mom. He waited until after dinner, and they all had dinner together. And as she was cleaning the kitchen, washing the dishes, he went up to her, grabbed her hand, and pulled it. And she said to him, um, I'm, I'm really busy. You know, leave me alone. Just, just go. And that was him trying to tell. He said he wanted to pull her into his room and tell her that Uncle, what's his name, was um, touching him. So that was his try. And he, he didn't get to. I don't remember how that was disclosed and came to the attention of a CAC and got a forensic interview. But I remember that because as a mom, I'm sure there are a lot of times where I've said, hold on, I'm busy right now. And it's one of the stories that I tell when I'm talking to parents to to bring awareness to, you know, we may not know what our kid's trying to tell us. We may think it's something dumb. They found a you know stick on the ground, but it could be something like this. And so ideally they'd go back and say, hey, what was it you want to tell me? That is such a good point because there are times when we can't step away and um, we can't get to their attention right away. But um, I love that you said to follow up afterwards, yeah. right? Yeah. For kids to disclose is such a huge thing. And it likely is going to blow up their lives as they know it. it. It's an incredible act of bravery mm -hmm. and unknowing and... I just think about that kid who probably worked up to it. Worked you know? up the courage. Worked yeah. up the courage yeah. and finally got there mm -hmm. and then was shut down for a legitimate reason. But, you know, poor mom did not intend to do that. Yeah. I, I'm just so happy to hear that the kid ended up somehow disclosing. disclosing to yeah. Someone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We often talk about this, Monica. We often vent and complain and bitch a lot about the system, about how unfair it is. 
we, we could go on and on, but yeah. we're, we're trying to stay positive here. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we often complain that prosecuting child sex abuse cases and filing charges in terms of child sexual abuse is so rare. There's data to support that, that it is so rare. A nationwide number was one in 10 gets actually prosecuted. And I'm sure it's different from county to county, but that's just in general. And the big reason for that is that child sexual abuse happens in secret. And most of the time, there's absolutely no evidence other than the child's words, right? And so then it becomes a he said, she said. And interestingly, over the years in talking to hundreds of parents, when they find out or they hear something has happened to their kid, they don't want it to be true, of course. And then you really don't want it to be true because it's your partner or your dad or someone in the family that you love and trust and is supposed to be protective. And so they end up thinking that if they take their kid to the doctor to have an exam and the exam turns out normal, that that means it didn't happen. But what we know is that you don't necessarily have to have evidence of any sexual abuse for it to have happened. When I speak to my students at Cal State LA, I will say, y'all could have had sex a week ago. And if they checked you today, there would be no evidence of that, you know, and yet people want to believe that if it's a child, there will be something found. And in fact, we had forensic nurse tell us that girls' hymens are even more fast healing. It doesn't show evidence of trauma in the way that you would think. And I read a study that over 90% of the time, there is no medical evidence. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly frustrating for us when we have detectives who, and again, there are yeah. wonderful detectives we work with, but once in a while, we'll have detectives who say, well, I put in for a medical exam, so we'll see if there are any findings there. And I can't help but say in that moment, well, you know that most likely there isn't. There isn't. Yeah. yeah. It's tough because you have the professionals who may not understand that. And then you have juries who will definitely expect, like on TV, for there to be some kind of evidence. Exactly. And that's what they call the CSI effect, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone is expecting yeah. evidence. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and, and yeah. we have to be clear, like those shows are interesting, <laughs> but they're made for entertainment purposes. Totally. We could go on and on about how frustrating the need for evidence is. Can you tell us a story about a time when there was evidence? Mm. Oh, you know what? There was a story. There were these two young girls, young, both under 10, and the mom had remarried, and the father of the younger girl had been molesting them and raping them, and he was we learned later, pretty violent with them, with these little girls, right, prepubescent little girls. They came in, they gave really detailed accounts of the abuse. So really good, clean forensic interviews. And the dad was arrested. The girls had their medical exams. And a week later, they recanted. So can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, that just means they took it back. They said, I lied. Nope, I made that up, made that up, made that up. And it met all the reasons why we know children recant, right? They were under 10. The perpetrator was the mom's current partner. He had been arrested. He was the sole provider. 
and she was struggling and she was upset and she didn't want to believe it. She said that the girls were lying. And the only reason that mom at one point believed that it happened was because they presented her with the medical evidence. So there was a lot of medical evidence for both of these little girls, internal injury and things like that. There was a lot there that oh wow, unequivocally supported the 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 first account they had given. Okay, that is so depressing because you know it was really bad for there to have been evidence. Mm-hmm. Also, as you're telling me that, I feel so badly for these girls because I can sense how desperately you'd want to take it back when you see your mom upset. You know that this guy's been arrested, but you just want everything to go back to normal. At least you know it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. Right. A lot of moms will be upset about what happened. I'm upset that my child was molested. And that's going to be hard for a kid, right? Your mom is crying. It's hurting her that you've been hurt. This mom was upset at the girls because, one, she didn't believe it, right? And because she didn't believe it, she was mad at them and she was saying, you're lying, take it back, he wouldn't do that, and things like that. So can you imagine that? Right. I wonder, do you think she really didn't believe it? Or was she angry that this came about? You know, I remember observing when they let her know and showed her some of the medical evidence because she kept saying, no, this didn't happen, they're lying, they're lying. And at some point, one of the MDT partners slid over some pictures and said, this happened, we know, there's medical evidence, here's what we have. And I think at that point, we probably all expected some emotion, right, as the parent of two little girls. And there was nothing. There was no emotion. I remember she said, oh, I guess it did happen then. But there was nothing more. So I have to wonder about her state, right? Right. Which she had been through, her history, to be presented with medical evidence and to not have the reaction that I know I would have if I found out someone did that to, to my kid. Well, so that makes me wonder two things. One, about her own trauma history. Mm-hmm. And number two, her level of connectedness with her kids. Yes. Can you speak to those things? (laughs) We need like a whole weekend for that one, right? Um, So I was a therapist first, and then I was a forensic interviewer, and and then I became a parent after that. Mm. And it was at that point that everything to me seemed more real, more serious, more, oh my God, I really have to figure out what I'm doing in terms of my work. I already cared about it, but it took it to a different level. And then I also remember realizing I really need to look at my past, Mm. look at what I have been through and how I was parented and my beliefs and my expectations of my kid and being a parent. How do I protect her and all of that? And what you're bringing to it, right? Your baggage. Yes, absolutely. And so we know now that it is critical to look back at our own experience to be able to have more awareness and more intentionality as we raise our own kid Mm -hmm. so that we don't repeat cycles, which is, again, over all these years, I've seen a lot of women especially, but sometimes men, who come in, their kids having a forensic interview, I go back and I speak to the parent, check in afterwards, and they disclose for the first time sometimes that they were also molested and that they didn't tell or that they did tell and someone didn't believe them. So... You know, you hear, you read, it's 
an intergenerational cycle, and then you just see it in front of you, and you go, yep. Yeah. Exactly. But wouldn't you think a sort of simple way of looking at this would be if you were molested, you would know what to look for. You uh, would be the best protector to make sure it didn't happen because yeah. you know, and you'll never let it happen. So why do we see it happen time and time again? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if we could answer that question, right? Right. <laughs> just, just fix it all like that. So a lot of the moms with children who've molested, I have seen just in my own experience, had a history of being sexually abused themselves. The interesting part is that here and there, sometimes when I'm teaching MFT students, sometimes when I'm doing parenting stuff, parents will ask questions or share that they were molested. And then there's this like flip where they are hyper vigilant about everything, right? Everything in the world is unsafe. Everyone is unsafe. You can't trust anybody, not even like nobody. And so it almost seems like the pendulum swings to the other side. And so I think if that does happen and you have those parents who become hypervigilant, giving the message that everything is dangerous, the kid is probably not going to end up at our CACs as much as the other kids. So I, I don't know. Hmm. But you also don't want to raise kids to be no. fearful, No, right? no, I'm not saying what we should be doing. Right. Yeah. But yeah. then clearly something is not working. Okay, this yeah. is a larger conversation. I get that. Okay, <laughs> we'll have you come back to talk okay. about just yes. that, if that's okay. Yeah. The other point was the connectedness between the mom and her kids. Is that also something else you have to come back for? <laughs> or can you touch on that a little bit? Gosh, it's a big topic. I feel like sometimes parents are not connected emotionally to their kids, to their kids' experiences, like daily experiences, you know, and are very on top of school and homework and get up and get dressed and let's get you over there and you got to eat and go to bed and all the structure and organization and running around and juggling that you need to do as a parent. And I only have one kid, but even just that takes so much energy and so much effort and so much mental work. For example, I know I was raised with parents who took care of all those things, but I also know that I didn't feel very connected or very seen by them. And that makes a big difference. And if you don't feel connected or seen and you don't feel like you can say anything to your parent about an experience you're having, no matter who did it or what you did or whose fault something was, you're not going to tell, right? You're going to figure it out on your own. I truly relate to that. Yeah, it's so important to emotionally connect with your kid and for them to feel seen and heard. Mm -hmm. The good thing is I think we have a lot of research. We have a lot of newer ways of looking at parenting. Mm -hmm. We understand a lot more about a child's brain and the way they're developing and how to meet them and see them in different ways, the information is out there. So I, we're moving in the right direction. I'm happy to hear that. Here we are talking about how atypical it is to have medical evidence or any kind of evidence, actually. But you just gave us an example of medical evidence. I remember you telling me the funniest, I mean, we have dark humor in this field. <laughs> but You have to. A, yes, a kind of a funny story about evidence that was dropped by oh. a not-so-bright offender. Tell us about oh, that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. This was in the last couple of years. 
And here's another example of the kid was not ready to disclose that she was being abused. The abuser was a hiker, and he went hiking with his phone, of course, like we all do, and he dropped it. He dropped his phone on the hill somewhere, and somebody found it. It wasn't locked, right? So you could just get into it. And he had pictures and videos of the abuse on the phone. And so that's how that was disclosed, right? And so we know that if a child hasn't disclosed at all, they're less likely to disclose during a formal interview. Yeah. And I don't remember what happened with that one, but I do remember thinking, you took pictures and videos of you abusing this little girl, and then you dropped your phone. What an idiot. And you know what? (laughs) I generally love hikers, but what a dumbass who I despise. And not to have it locked. I mean, this guy is a true loser. (laughs) Well, what's interesting to me is that, like you said, this girl hadn't even disclosed. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have these interviews where it it came about in a different way, like this example. And then you have the kids sitting in front of you. And, and they, they haven't disclosed. So how do you deal with a kid like that? And to me, this just points out that every kid really has to be ready, like when they're ready. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. It's interesting. I thought about this earlier. There is the crisis, we could say, of a kid who is beginning to be abused, right? I had my life and I was, and everything was, you know, just going along. And now there's this person who's doing these things to me. So that's overwhelming. That can You can think of it as like a crisis. So somewhat, somehow they deal with it, right? They may push it down. They may pretend it's not happening. They may tell. and But for the kids who don't tell right away, which is most of them, then you have the point where they do tell. And now it's a brand new type of crisis. It's related to the sexual abuse, but it's different because now I'm dealing with everyone else finding out. This girl who was on this the hiker's phone, for whatever reason, she hadn't disclosed to anyone. I I see what you're saying. There's the dealing with the abuse that's happening. And then there's another chapter, Mm -hmm. which is dealing with the disclosure. Yeah. And then all that happens after that. The social worker's calling my mom. I have to go to a forensic interview. A cop showed up at my house. Right. My mom's crying all the time. My uncle's in jail. There's all of that. that. uproots your life. It's just, isn't it just incredible how much kids have to go through and the onus is on them mm-hmm. to tell, to reach the burden of proof often, yes. right? To be strong enough to be believed, to yes. tell the story, to stand up in court if they have to testify in front of their abuser. Right. I don't know if I could do it as an it, adult. Ex- exactly. Yeah. We, I mean, we hear time and time again, stories of adults who say, actually, never mind. I, I can't do that. And then we expect kids to do it. It just breaks my brain. That's right. The other thing that's interesting to me is about expecting bravery like this from kids, right? A lot of the time, you know how we see kids who come in and some of them you go, oh, they're the perfect victim. And I mean that in the sense that they're meek, they're soft-spoken, they may have a developmental delay or not right? and they're or, just yeah. raised to be compliant oh, and obedient exactly right? Yeah. right never question adults you yeah. just listen to them i mean all these ways in which they become better victims right mm-hmm. and More vulnerable yeah. yeah i'm bringing this up because i know you have told me this multiple times that you'll see cases where an older sister will oh. tell 
only when <sighs> yeah. she thinks she is protecting spare yeah. her younger yeah. sibling, right? Yeah. So I was interviewing this older sister. I want to say she was 17. And I don't remember who the abuser was, but whoever it was was living in the home and he began to abuse her and then started to rape her. And again, all the things, right? And it had been years that he had been doing this to her, years. She made this deal, I guess you could say, that she would continue to allow it, but the deal was he wasn't to touch her sister. And the way this came out was after he'd been abusing her sister for a while, the little sister disclosed. And then the older sister was furious because they had a deal. And so during the forensic interview, she was angry. She was just so angry at him for breaking their deal, but also I think at her for believing him. You know, so there was that. She was sacrificing herself to protect her sister from the same fate. And it didn't even work. And it didn't work. Yeah. But then I've had so many kids who said, the reason I haven't told is because he is my younger sibling's biological dad. I grew up without my biological dad, and I don't want the same thing for my younger siblings. So they are protecting them in that sense. I've heard that so much, too. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. This calls to mind one of the interviews of this girl that I'll never forget, just to tell it very quickly. She was sleeping on the trundle bed Mm -hmm. in her sister's room. It was one of these situations where there were about four kids in the room, and the family had had a party, and she woke up, but didn't make herself known that she was awake, but she woke up to a flash going off, and she kind of sneakily looked around like, what's going on, and saw that her stepdad was what looked like taking photos of her sister who was sleeping on the twin bed above her under her shirt and under her pants. Yep. And after he left the room, she left the room and went up and told her mom in that moment. And I remember when I first heard this, I thought, you know what? I don't think I've ever heard a case where a kid has in the moment or right after Mm -hmm. told. Mm -hmm. And there's a million reasons for it. One big one being your body is in survival mode. Literally, you are frozen. Mm -hmm. But you'll hear about a sister or someone who cares about this person willing to do that, right? And also what was amazing was that when I interviewed the girl who actually had her uh, genitals photographed by her stepdad, she was meek, timid. I could barely hear her talking. And she did have a speech impediment. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh, God, of course, that was the girl that he picked, you know. But then the other part of the story that stuck out to me was so crazy to me was that the sister who told said she remembered telling her mom and then getting back in bed and hearing her mom and her stepdad arguing. Mm -hmm. The mom believed it. And she was yelling at him. And she said, how could you do this after what we've been through? And it turns out that they had met in high school and bonded over the fact that they had both been Mm -hmm. sexually victimized as children. And here it was happening again. So we're back to the intergenerational thing again. For different reasons. For different reasons. (sighs) I know. (laughs) I know. It's just horrific. 
But again, how brave of her, right? Yeah. And then because yeah. of her, yeah. she and her sister came in yeah. for interviews and there was an investigation. Most likely <clears throat> nothing happened with it. Yeah. But actually, yeah. no, because there were photos. Oh, right. 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 Yeah, you see yeah. the rare case there when go. there's evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It, it might actually be. Filed. It reminds me, as you said, that she got up and she went and told her mom in the moment, right? I've also had kids who have said, I wanted to get up. It was in the middle of the night, which is often the case. I wanted to get up and tell my mom, but the door to her bedroom was locked. And she has said to me that when the door to the bedroom is locked, I am not to interrupt, right? And and we get that. Maybe why? And also... (laughs) I don't know. There should be this fine print, right? Hey, honey, never walk into my room if the door's closed unless unless it's an emergency. And so it's it makes me really think about the words that we say to kids and all the exceptions that we may not even think about. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're back to that wanting to do better and being available to our children Mm -hmm. for if and when. Yeah. Yep. They have to tell us something important. Yeah. So, Monica, do you have any other stories, any other issues, any other venting you want to talk about? <laughs> I have a lot of issues and a lot of <laughs> venting. <laughs> that's why I love you. And that's why we get along. I feel like the one thing I want to just shout out for people to hear is you have to talk to your kids about their bodies, about sexual abuse and how to prevent it and what to do, right? How to pick up on the signs, things like that. And the one thing I want to say is most people say, I don't want to scare them. I don't know what to say. And it's a developmental conversation. I tell them all the time, you don't tell your kid to brush their teeth. And then you say, I had the conversation about brushing teeth. It's a conversation that begins even before they're verbal, when you're changing diapers, about their body parts and what they're called. And it develops as your child is developing, Right. And we don't want to scare them. I know I don't want to scare my daughter about all the horrors out there, but I do want her to be informed and know about her body and who can touch it, who can see it, who gets to handle it, in what ways and when to stand up and say, no, I don't like that. So, yes, talk to your kids. I would just add for the kids to trust their instincts or maybe get more in touch with their instincts. And act on their instincts, right? So sometimes kids say, I knew it wasn't right, and they didn't have the strength or the wherewithal to say, "Uh, this is going to be uncomfortable, but, you know, I I need to do this. So, Monica, last thing. You know the reason I I had you on is because you are one of the people that I call the lion-hearted. You literally spend your life fighting child sexual abuse, child abuse of all kinds. How do you bring joy into your life. Ah, uh, okay. Joy, what's that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Not uh, okay, Humor, Monica. I know, yes. humor. With people like you uh-huh. who get it. <laughs> when I could, where I could just be myself and say all the things I wouldn't say at work, right? Mm-hmm. So definitely a sense of humor. People I can just let it all hang out with. Um, but I love dancing. I love music. I love music. Um mm-hmm. I also like cooking. I've been getting into cooking a lot. I'm enjoying it. And I'm surprised to say it because I used to hate cooking when I was in my 20s and 30s. Still so. hate it. <laughs> just... Oh, sorry. This wasn't a question for me. <laughs> um, so cooking. I also love the beach mm-hmm. and being outdoors and things like that. And also something that has brought me joy is seeing the joy in your kids' 
face when they discover something new or there's a look in their eyes or there's a way they call you mama. She calls me mommy in Spanish. Sometimes she'll go mama and oh, and, oh I don't know what that does to me, but there's, uh, yeah, so things like that. When we first met, I remember you talking about dance and the importance of, and this gets into yeah. Bessel van der Kolk stuff, mm-hmm, remember? Mm-hmm. And movement. And movement. Being in your body. Yeah. And being in rhythm with yes. other people mm-hmm. and how important that is. Yep. Um, when was the last time you went dancing, Monica? <laughs> oh, you're going to be proud of me. I think it was two weeks ago. Because in the summer here at the Autry, which is right yep. down the street from you, yep. um, they have a, I think it's called Sizzling Summer Nights. And so on Thursdays from 6 to 9, they have a live salsa band. And uh, I go and meet some friends there. And so there you go. Two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Got to drag time, you out one day. Well, I'll just come and I'll spy on you. <laughs> You can have some tacos. They have tacos, too. Okay, I can do that. Thank you so, so much for coming on. (laughs) And I am going to, you know, grab you next time to talk about the other ways in which you protect children in your everyday life, okay? All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. Okay, bye. bye. It may seem weird to say it was fun to interview my dear friend and colleague about such depressing stuff, but it is truly enjoyable for us to talk about all things forensic interviewing because we are obsessed with every single aspect of it. And I know it's important for us also to vent and to feel less alone doing this work. I'm so grateful to have Monica in my life to learn from and to be a lion-hearted inspiration. I hope it's crystal clear from hearing Monica sharing stories from her cases that it is so incredibly hard for kids to tell someone about their abuse, and more so for adults to actually take the time to truly listen to children. There's every reason in the world for a child not to tell, and yet somehow, miraculously, a few will muster up the bravery to tell. Some children will try over and over to reveal the abuse, like the national anthem singing girl, and others will tug at their parents' sleeve only to be shooed away like the boy who tried to tell his mom, who was busy washing the dishes and probably thinking about a million things like all of us parents do. We must, as adults, whether mandated reporters or not, take the time to truly listen to kids. Furthermore, we must not get hung up on whether there's actual evidence of abuse, because I hope it's also clear to you now that there's almost never evidence. Almost never. Take kids seriously and listen like a detective. Be curious and connected to your kids. Hopefully they will never have abuse to disclose, but will always feel that you are the safe person they could go to with anything. Of course, I can't sign off without addressing the intergenerational aspect of child sexual abuse and how the lived trauma of one generation, if not addressed, risks being handed to the next generation. Let's do our best to stop this. Get educated, get trained, resources for survivors, for child protectors, and for those who want to learn how to fight this epidemic are, as always, in the show notes. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossie for editing, and of course to our guest, Monica Barunda. Follow us at The Lionhearted Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast for all future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend who can relate. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at the Lionhearted Podcast at gmail.com and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>